What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week, we started looking at the epic battle that we see between God and Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. And at the start of this epic battle, we see the hardness of Pharaoh's heart where he's not even willing uh, to let the Israelites go, even for three days. That was the initial request of just let us go to the wilderness for three days and worship the Lord. And he's not having any of it. And we also see his view of worshiping God. He thought it was a waste of time and that he needed to do something keep the Israelites from wasting their time with worship. And so he says, hey, you know what? You guys have too much time on your hands. You're idle. So we're going to give you more work. And so you're going to have to do the same amount of bricks that you make, but we're no longer going to give you straw. You're going to have to make uh, go find your own straw. And so the Israelites respond to this new difficult situation, you know, first by crying out to the wrong person. You know, there's this problem, this issue, and they go running to Pharaoh and they cry out to him thinking that he's going to solve the problem and he doesn't solve it at all. They don't find any sympathy, any relief from Pharaoh. He just tells them, you got to make as many bricks as you did before without any straw. And so after this meeting, they come to Moses and they start complaining to Moses and they blame Moses for their new difficult situation and they claim that Moses has made them abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh, even though they it's been abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh. And so now Moses is in this place where, you know, things aren't going the way that he expected. He expected God just to move and, you know, deliver right away. And so now things are worse for the Israelites. They're complaining against him. And so he comes to God at the end of chapter five with, you know, crying out to the Lord, which was good, but he brings up three questions that he poses to God. And these are the three questions we ended with last week. He says, why did you bring trouble on the Israelites? Why did you send me? For since I came, Pharaoh has done evil to the Israelites. And why have you not delivered your people at all? So, you know, you can understand where Moses is at. He's frustrated. He might even be a little bit angry or bitter towards God of why aren't things working out the way that assumed they would. I mean, why aren't you know things getting better at least? They're getting worse. And so he poses these questions to the Lord. And really here in chapter 6, almost all of chapter 6 is God's answer to these three questions that Moses poses at the end of chapter 5. And something I love about the answer that God's going to give to Moses here is it's not a rebuke. You know, God could come and say, who do you think you are saying this to me? And you know, who do you think you are claiming this? Or, or why haven't I worked in your timing? Or why haven't I done the way that you anticipated them? Hey, God doesn't do any of that. He understands where Moses is coming from. 
He understands how Moses feels. He understands the frustration that he has and the difficult situation he's in. And so he answers these questions that Moses brings to him, and he answers them in a way that encourages Moses, that brings comfort to Moses, that helps Moses deal with the circumstance that he is faced with. And you know, you and I often have questions for God like Moses did. You know, God, why did you allow this trouble in my life? God, why did you call me to this place or send me to this place and now there's this person or there's this evil situation that has come against me and things are worse than they were for me than before you called me? Why have you not delivered me from my troubles? You know, I'm sure all of us have asked these types of questions to God as we face difficulties, as we face hardships and, and people that are a trouble to us. And we throw these questions out to the Lord. And so the answer that God's going to give to the questions here in chapter 6 to Moses, I think are just as important for us. Because these are the questions and the answers that, the answers ultimately that we need to hear as we pose these different questions to the Lord. And so as we look at the encouragement and comfort that God gives in answering these questions for Moses, hopefully we can take encouragement and comfort as well. And so starting in verse one of chapter six, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So Moses asked God these questions. You know, why did you bring trouble on the Israelites? Why are things worse for them now? You know, why did you send me here? I mean, all, all that's happened is things have gotten worse. Pharaoh's doing evil. You know, why did you even bring me over to Egypt? And why haven't you delivered your people? Isn't that the reason that I came? Well, God's first response to these three questions is, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. You know, Moses' three questions really are stemming from what he saw Pharaoh do. He sees the power of Pharaoh. He sees how Pharaoh has taken the Israelites and said, you know what, yeah, you've been making bricks and, and building for me. Well, guess what? It's going to get worse. You're going to keep making the same amount of bricks, but now I'm going to, I have the power to remove the straw that we give. You guys can go find your own straw. And so he's seen what Pharaoh is capable of doing, the authority that Pharaoh has, the power that Pharaoh has, and he's looking towards that and that's really brought him to this place that he poses these three questions and so the first thing that God does in response to these questions of Moses is that he says you know what now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh you've seen Pharaoh's judgments you've seen what Pharaoh's done to the Israelites now you're going to see my judgment now you're going to see what I'll do to Pharaoh Moses was discouraged because he was too impressed by Pharaoh and his power and not impressed enough by God and his power. He was looking at Pharaoh. He saw what Pharaoh was able to do, but he missed something far more important. The God that was on his side. The power that God has versus the really nothing power in comparison that Pharaoh has. So the first thing that God does is encourage Moses, you know what, stop looking, stop being impressed by Pharaoh and the authority and the power he has and start looking to me. Look to my authority. Look to my power. Moses, look at me and you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. Look at me and you will see that through my strong hand, Pharaoh is not only going to let the Israelites go, he's actually going to drive them out of the land. 
Right now he's saying no, but after I move, he's going to beg for them to leave because I'm going to move in such a powerful way. So God knew that Moses was struggling with the power that Pharaoh had because of what Pharaoh had just done. And now God encourages Moses, look to me. See how much more powerful I am than Pharaoh. And since God is on Moses' side, that this should bring comfort. Hey, you got the truly powerful one with you. I am on your side. I will help you overcome anything that Pharaoh brings your way. You know, I think oftentimes we struggle in the same way that Moses did. We struggle with being too impressed with the power that our enemy has or the size of the problem that we face, and we're not impressed enough by the power and the size of our God. And it's in those times that we often ask these questions that Moses did. God, why, why, what are you going to do in this situation? It's just so big. How are you going to help me? You know, this enemy is just too powerful. What can you do to overcome that? You know, we pose these questions because we've elevated our situation and enemy that we fight to a place that it doesn't belong in comparison to the God that we serve. We've kind of missed how powerful our God is, how big our God is. And so God in His love and His grace, like He does with Moses, He just gives us a nice friendly reminder. Hey, remember who's on your side? Remember who you serve? Remember how big I am? Remember I'm the creator of everything? Remember I spoke and all that you see exists? I will take care of you in this situation. So God starts off answering Moses' three questions by just helping Moses to take his eyes off of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's power and Pharaoh's authority and put it back where it belongs on God. But he continues answering this question with a reminder of who he is. Notice what he says in verses 2-5. through five. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So God starts off here with a reminder to Moses. And he, he, Moses should have known this, but just like you know Moses, we often forget. We forget who God is. Is especially when we find ourselves in situations where we think, man, big. The situation's big. This person's too powerful. We lose sight of the God that we serve, and so God reminds Moses of who He is, and He just tells him, "I am the Lord." Now, the Hebrew word translated "I am the Lord" is the word Yahweh. It's the same word that God used at the burning bush when Moses said, "Hey, you know, who should I tell the Israelites is sending me?" And He says. Tell them, I am has sent you. You know, this is the word Yahweh, this Hebrew word that's often translated Lord in the Bible. We don't actually even know for sure how it's spelled because they wouldn't put the vowels in. They only put the consonants because they didn't feel worthy to even spell the name. But this is the name that God has used often throughout the book of Genesis uh, to describe himself. He used this name to describe himself to Moses. And he's just reminding Moses of who he is. F.B. Meyer wrote this. When all human help has failed and the soul, exhausted and despairing, has given up hope from man, God draws near and says, I am. Yeah, I love that quote because 
such an important reality. Moses is in that place. He's in despair. He doesn't know what's going on. Lord, how am I ever going to be able to defeat Pharaoh and his power and his authority? He says, remember who I am. Remember who is with you. This is the reminder that we need to have. And he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as Almighty God, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. Now, this is a really interesting statement that God's making here that, hey, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew one name for me, Almighty God, El Shaddai, but they didn't know me by the name that I'm giving you now, by my name not known to them, or Yahweh, I was not known to them. Now, the reason this is interesting is the patriarchs did at least have this name directed towards them. This name, we see it 160 times in Genesis, so uh, it's not they didn't know. You know, we actually specifically told Abraham this exact phrase, I am the Lord, speaking of his actual name of Yahweh. And so, what, God, what, what does God mean when he says, well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know this name, Lord, didn't know this name, Yahweh? It seems kind of like, well, how is that possible? Because you told them your name. Well, most commentators believe that when God says the patriarchs didn't know his name, he's not speaking of the fact that they didn't know what his name was, given to them. He's more speaking of the fact that they didn't know the full name, Yahweh. You see, part of the meaning of the name Yahweh is a God who kept and fulfilled and promises. And when God used this name Yahweh, He almost always connects it with the covenant that Abraham and his descendants and the fact that He was going to fulfill His covenant, His promises. Now, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that He would make him a great nation, that He would give him a promised land, the one that went on to, the one that went on to Jacob, Guess what? They never saw the fulfillment of that. That they never saw the nation that God would make them into. Experience the promised land in the way that God was going to give it to them, where it would be theirs that they own, that they possessed. And so they didn't actually see the fulfillment of the reality of what God was going to do. Walter Kaiser wrote, the patriarchs only had only the promises, not the things promised. And this was a struggle that they had. You know, they, they have this word, this promise from God, and we saw with all struggle with the reality of, but we haven't received it yet. We haven't seen it yet. And even as they die, their generation trust that it's coming. It hasn't come in my time, but I believe it will come, hopefully, in yours or maybe the next generation after that. And so most commentators believe that God is saying the patriarchs didn't know the full name, uh, full meaning of the name Yahweh because they didn't see the of the covenant. So the patriarchs knew God as the maker of the covenant, but Moses and his generation, they're going to know God even better. God is the fulfiller of the covenant. They're actually going to see the fulfillment of what God said he would do because he's going to deliver them from Egypt and take them to the promised land. Now notice in verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. So the patriarchs did know God by a name in the sense that not only did they know the name God Almighty or El Shaddai, they also experienced that. You know, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, God's might, his power was demonstrated in their lives. 
them. He provided for them. He enabled them to miraculously have children. You know, God's uh, might was there. God Almighty was clearly demonstrated. But yet, Yahweh and the fulfillment of the promise, that's something that they didn't experience, they didn't see. And so what God is saying here to Moses is a huge Hey Moses, you're going to experience something for me that the patriarchs didn't see, that Abraham didn't experience, that Isaac didn't experience, that you're going to see me fulfill the covenant that I made with them. You're going to see me fulfill the promises. And I want you to remember that because that is who you're serving. Because you're wondering, Lord, what's going to happen? We got Pharaoh. He's doing all this stuff. Hey, I promised that I would deliver deliver the nation of Israel. I promised that this was going to happen. I would bring you to the promised land. And let me just remind you of who I am, the God that you the one who keeps these promises that you can trust. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, the supreme need in every hour of difficulty and depression is a vision of God. To see Him is to see all else in proper proportion and perspective. This was Moses' problem. He took his eyes off of God and put it on And when he did that, he lost perspective of the situation. And the situation became you know, insurmountable. Pharaoh's too big. His authority is too great. Lord, what are you going to do? And stem from this fact that he took his eyes off of God and who God is and the power that God has and he placed it on Pharaoh and he's now elevating Pharaoh and thinking that actually is, and he's missed the reality of who God is. And so God's trying to encourage him, get your eyes back on me so that you can have a proper perspective of the situation that you're in and recognize that there will be victory, that there will be deliverance because the God who's on your side is so much bigger than the enemy that you face. And I think this is so important for us to be reminded of, reminded that we serve, Reminded of the God that's on our side, especially when we get distracted by how big things in this world seem to be, when the pharaohs of life come our way, we need to be reminded that God is so much bigger than them, so much more powerful than them. And so if you're going through difficulty, take comfort in the truth that God is mighty, but He also does what He promises to do. So God answers Moses' three questions first by helping Moses what he's about to do to Pharaoh. Second, by reminding him of who he is. And now we're going to see the third way that God answers Moses' questions in verses 6-8. through eight. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give to you it to you as an inheritance. I am the Lord. In these verses, we see seven things that God tells Moses also to take and tell the Israelites as well. Seven things that God will do for the nation of Israel. And with these seven statements, we see this great two words. I will. Whenever you see those God, where God is saying, I will do something, you take note of that. And the reason you should take note of that is because God 
to do what he says he will do. And so if you will, then you know that's going to happen. Do that. And so God tells them seven I will statements here in these verses. And these were statements that he was encouraging Moses and the Israelites to look forward to because he's saying these are things that I am going to do and I'm actually going to do them really soon. But as we look at these seven I will statements, I want us to look back on what Jesus has done for us. Because these seven I will statements are a wonderful Jesus has done for us. And so for them, they're looking forward to what God was going to do. We're going to look back at what Jesus already has done. The first I will statement that God gives to Moses is, I will bring you out from under your burdens. You know, the Israelites were burdened. They were greatly burdened because of the needed someone to release them from those burdens. And God gives them this wonderful encouragement. I will be the one to bring you out from the burdens you're in. But you know what? You and I are in burden. We, we were definitely very burdened by the world, by Satan, by our sin. And God brought us out from those burdens when Jesus Christ died on the cross and we put our faith in what Christ has done. And so the Israelites need to look forward to the promise that God will bring them out of their burdens. But we look back, back to the fact that God has already done the work necessary on the cross to bring us away from our burdens. The second I will statement that God gives to Moses is, I will rescue you from your bondage. The Israelites were in bondage. They were in bondage to the Egyptians. They had no way of freeing themselves, no way of getting away on their own. They needed a rescuer. And God says, that's going to be me. I'm going to rescue you from your bondage, from your slavery there in Egypt. And you and I, we were in bondage to sin. And we had no way of freeing ourselves from the sin that we were in. And we needed a rescuer as well. And just like God says to the Israelites, He says to us, hey, I am going to be your rescuer. I'm going to be the one that rescues you from sin. And I'm going to rescue you by sacrificing myself on the cross for what you've done. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36 says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. A humorous statement since they've been in bondage for 400 years to the Egyptians, but we'll just throw that aside. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. What a wonderful statement of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even go down that road of, oh, actually, you've been in bondage a lot. You know what? You're in bondage to something that you don't even see that sin. And I've come to free you from that. And the Son sets you free indeed. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so the Israelites need to look forward to the promise of God rescuing them from bondage in Egypt. And we look to the sacrifice of Christ as He rescued us from our bondage to sin at the cross. The third I will statement that God gives to Moses is I will redeem you with arm and with great judgments. The Israelites needed to be redeemed. They needed someone with great power to rescue them, redeem them from someone who had power, who had authority, 
Pharaoh. They need someone with greater power, greater authority to redeem them. And God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to redeem you with my outstretched arm and with my great judgment. We're going to see the power of God in these coming chapters and the plagues that He's going to bring and and what His judgments are. But you know what? You and I needed to be redeemed from our sin. And I love the picture of the outstretched arms because that's a picture of Jesus. Outstretched arms, nailed to a cross. That's what He ultimately had to do to redeem us from our sin. And He took the judgments of God that we deserve upon Himself so that we wouldn't have to. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He has redeemed us from the curse that each one of us have living up to God's perfect standard in the law. We've all fallen short. We've all failed. But Jesus didn't. And He made it possible for us to be forgiven for all the times that we did. And so Israel needs to look forward to the promise of God's redemption with outstretched arms and judgment. And we need to look at the fact that God already redeemed us from our sin with His outstretched arm on the cross. The fourth I will statement that God gives to Moses is I will take you as my people. This is great. God's saying, I'm not just going to free you. You're a slave. I'm not just going to give you freedom. I'm going to do something even more. I'm going to take you as my people. You're going to be my special people. And the same thing is true with us. God didn't just free us from our slavery to sin. He didn't just pay the price for our sin and said, okay, now just go live your life. He says, no, 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 I'm going to now take it a step further. I'm going to adopt you as my children. I'm going to take you as my special people. You're going to be a part of my family. Galatians 4, 4-6 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. What Jesus did on the cross, this is one of the most glorious things that we have, that we are now God's children, that we truly can call Him Abba, which is you know, the word for Daddy. That, that, that is the relationship that we now have with the Creator of heaven and earth. And so Israel needed to look forward to this promise that God was going to do, and we look back to the cross where that made it possible for us to have this wonderful relationship. The fifth I will statement that God gives Moses is, I will be your God. Not only did God give the Israelites the privilege of being His people, but He says, I'm going to give you the privilege of allowing Myself to be your God. The Israelites are about to discover what a privilege it is to have God on their side. Man, Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, the ones they thought, those are the truly powerful. Everyone's going to find out who has the real power real soon, and the Israelites can be very pleased. God is their God, and He is on their side. And we have that wonderful privilege as well. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? When God's for us, when He's on our side, who can be against us? No matter how big it is, no matter how you know, powerful they seem, they're nothing in comparison to the God that we serve. The sixth I will statement that God gives to Moses, I will bring you into the promised land, the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. So God wasn't just saying, hey, I'm just going to take you out of this horrible situation. We're going we're to go from Egypt and then we're just going to hang out in the wilderness for the rest of your life. No, he didn't just say, I'm just going to take you from this place. I'm going to bring you to somewhere wonderful, somewhere that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You are going to be delivered not only from Egypt, but to be taken to the promised land. And you're going to have this wonderful blessing. And I love that reality that in Christ, God didn't just free from slavery to sin, but we're now blessed with the promises that God gives us. That The greatest is our final destination, which is heaven. But even in this life, we have so many promises that we get to of what Christ has done. One of the ones that I love, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so as the, the look forward to what God's going to do to the promised land, we can look back at what Jesus has done and the blessings and the promise hold on to now presently in this and the reality that we're going to the promised land of heaven that God has made possible through the sacrifice of His Son. The seventh I will statement and the final one that God gives to Moses is I will give the promised land to you as a heritage, or meaning an inheritance. So God's going to take Israel, His special people, He's going to be their God, and He's going to give them the promised land as an inheritance. Because of this special relationship they have, He's like, hey, you're going to inherit this because I'm your God. And now you get this wonderful privilege because of it. And you know what? The same is true for us. Because of our relationship with God through Christ, we have this amazing inheritance, one that we don't deserve, one that we could never earn, we've been blessed by. Verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1 says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. We have this amazing inheritance. Well, how do we know we're going to get it? Well, the Spirit of God is the guarantee. We can be confident it's coming because God has already given us His Spirit. So here we see these seven I will statements from God are just Wonderful promises of things that I will do for you, Israelites. Moses, be encouraged and take this truth and encourage the Israelites with it as well. But they're an amazing picture of what God has done for us through Jesus. Now, something I want you to see here is that these seven I will statements, they're powerful only because God is. I mean, you can say, I will do something all you want. You know, you know I will pick up a building and throw it across the street. Well, I don't have power to do it. So it's just a, a useless statement. It's only valuable if you actually can do what you say you will do. And I'm sure that all of us have had people in our lives who said, oh, I will do something. I will be there. I will help or I will. And they let us down. And we realize that, no, they're not that we can kind of, oh, wow, I will do. But God has power. Anything that he claims to do, he can do it. And this is one of the big things that separates God from Satan. 
And we so often think that God and Satan are kind of on par and they have this battle going on, which is completely ridiculous. Satan's not on par with God in any way, shape, or form. But you know what? Satan, five I will statements. Isaiah 14, 13 through 15 says this. For you have said in your heart, speaking of Satan, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Notice this. Satan is making five I will statements, five things that he says, I am going to do. So both Satan and God, that they're making I will statements. Well, what's the difference? The difference is Satan doesn't and can't accomplish any of them. All of the statements that he makes, he do. Oh, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to ascend to the throne. I'm always going to take that role. No, you're not. You're not going to do any of these things. You don't have the power to do any of these things. And this is the big difference between Satan and God. When God makes an I will statement, he does it. Not only because he's faithful to his promises, but he actually has the ability because he has the power. Where Satan makes all sorts of lies and all sorts of you know, things that he claims, but he doesn't actually have the power to accomplish. So Moses asks God three questions. And God answers Moses' three questions by first helping Moses to see that he's about to take care of Pharaoh, get his eyes off Pharaoh, get his eyes off Second, by reminding Moses of who God is. And third, by telling Moses seven things that he's going to do. But after giving these three great responses to Moses' three God says, don't just keep this to yourself, Moses. This is not just for you. This is for the Israelites as well. Because remember, they're the ones who complain right before Moses' questions. They're the ones who are upset with God. Lord, what's going on? We thought you were coming to deliver. Now things are worse for us. And so God's saying, hey, this message is not just to be an encouragement and comfort for you. It's to be an encouragement and comfort for them as well. And so Moses is going to take this message to the Israelites and let's see how they respond. Verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. So Moses goes to the Israelites and he shares these three great things that God has shared. Who God is and these wonderful seven I am statements that I will you know, do these great things for you. But... We're told that the Israelites don't heed Moses, and we're given the reason why. Because of anguish of spirits and cruel bondage. So think about this. God has this wonderful message of encouragement for these Israelites. I'm going to free you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you as my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you the promised land. But they won't listen to the message. Why? Because they're so focused on all anguish difficulties that they're going through. They're not willing to heed the wonderful promises of God because they won't look past the difficulties that they're facing presently. And the sad thing is, the circumstances they weren't willing to look past are the exact circumstances that God is promising to deliver them from. Uh, we're not going to listen to you, Moses. We don't want to hear what you have to say. Oh, we're suffering from all this anguish because of our uh, slavery, because of the fact that we're here in Egypt under this horrible oppressure. That reality is God's like, the message that I have is I'm going to deliver you from that. You're not willing to heed 
the thing that actually you really desperately need to hear right now. The thing that you desperately need you're so focused on the problems that you're facing. This is something that we often struggle with as well. We're not willing to listen and heed the promises of God because we're so focused on our difficult circumstances. We get focused on what we're going through that we're not willing to look to what God is, is saying. Hey, I have a promise for you. I have an encouragement for you. I want to help you. Oh, I don't even want to hear it, Lord. You know, what I'm going through right now is just, you know, just overwhelming. I can't even think or listen or anything else because we're so focused on what we're dealing with. We don't actually see that God's saying, hey, what I have to share here is going to really help. It's going to be such an encouragement. It's going to be such a comfort. This is what you need to hear in the midst of this, but you won't listen because you're in the midst of it. And it's just kind of that catch-22 that we find ourselves in sometimes. One of the biggest problems with that is that we're rejecting one of the main things that God wants to give us in the midst of our difficulties. Hey, promises that I have for you are one of the most encouraging and comforting things that you can have in the midst of struggles. You need to listen to them. You're robbing yourself of wonderful blessings because you won't listen. But you know what? This is exactly what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to stay focused on our problems, not on God. He knows that when we take our eyes off the problem, off the thing, off the situation, off the person, whatever it is, and put it on God, the perspective changes. We put it on God and His promises. All of a sudden, there's comfort. There's encouragement. There's a willingness to stand up. There's a willingness to keep fighting. There's a willingness to keep going. Whereas we just keep our eyes on the problem. Beaten down. And so the enemy knows that this is not the thing that he wants from us. And so he encourages us, yeah, just focus on your problems instead of the solution that God has for you. So God gives the Israelites a huge encouragement, something that they desperately needed to hear, something they needed to hold on to, but they're not willing to listen. They're not willing to listen to all the great things that he just shared to Moses. So they miss out on the comfort, they miss out on the help, they miss out on the strength that this would have brought to them. Well, now God's going to tell Moses to give another message, a message to a person who's even less willing, and that is Pharaoh, no. He says in verses 10 through 13. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his hand. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, Moses has already spoken to Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't, Pharaoh didn't do anything that Moses said. He actually made things worse for the Israelites. Moses spoke to the Israelites. And now they're all up. Well, and now God says, you know what? I got another message that I need you to give to Pharaoh. And so Moses is like, been there, done that. Didn't work last time. Actually, it's the same message. I really doubt anything's changed in these last few days. And so notice what he responds to God by saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Since Moses wasn't able to persuade those that would actually be more likely to listen, the Israelites, he's thinking, how am I able to persuade my enemy, Pharaoh, who's already said no the first time I spoke to him? And I totally understand why Moses would think this. If I couldn't persuade 
my own family of something, a thing, you know, a group that loves me and wants to do things that I share, it would be much more easily persuaded. You know, why would I think that I could persuade my enemy? Why would I think that I could persuade someone who doesn't love me and hates me and, and is more likely not to believe me anyway? So I get what Moses is thinking. I get why he think this, but he missed something very important. It's not up to Moses to persuade anybody. This is his struggle. Oh, I couldn't persuade Israelites, so how am I going to persuade Pharaoh? You didn't know you don't need to persuade either. I haven't asked you to persuade. Them. I've asked you to give a message and just to be faithful to present it. I did not tell you you have to persuade anyone. And so this is something that Moses missed. You're a messenger. Deliver the message. That's your responsibility. That's your ministry. You are not responsible for persuading people to accept the message that I'm giving you. And I think this is something that's so important for us to remember, especially doing ministry that God has called us to do or giving a message that God has given us to give because God has given each one of us the message of the gospel. He tells all of us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So that all of us should be recognizing, hey, we have this message, we have this call of God to give this. But God often gives us words from the Bible, a message to, to give to people, and sometimes just deliver it. I'm not asking you to persuade them, I'm just asking you to give the message. It's my job. You just be my mouthpiece. But I think too often we get frustrated, we failed. I shared the gospel with them and they rejected it. I'm so horrible at this, man. I, I don't, why did God even do this? And, and we think it's my responsibility to persuade them to accept it when that's not the reality at all. It's just your responsibility to proclaim what God has given you to proclaim. If you've done that, then you've done what God has asked you to do. It's his responsibility to work in hearts. It's his responsibility to work in lives. That's not even if you want so Moses feels like he's failing because the Israelites and Pharaoh aren't listening. But he's not failing. It's not something that God ever asked of him. He was being faithful with what God gave him to do. And we need to realize that God might call us to share a message with people that aren't going to listen. And that's not a very fun calling. You know, Jeremiah had that calling. God gave him a message. to give, And you know how many people ever listened? And now how many people ever accepted the message? Zero. Not one person ever was like, you know what, Jeremiah, that's a great message. Thank for giving the, the message of the Lord to us, man. But we're, we're, we're ready to believe. He didn't have one person ever do I called him to proclaim something to a group of people that would never listen. And you might think today in the way that we think, man, Jeremiah was a failure. I mean, that guy's pathetic. He didn't persuade one person. His role, that wasn't his job. God was given a message to the nation and they were hard-hearted, unwilling to listen. It was not Jeremiah's job to persuade them. It was his job to proclaim that message. And it actually is a very hard job. It's a lot easier to tell things to people who listen, much harder to keep telling it to people who won't. But he was faithful until they killed him. And so the key for Moses was to be obedient, to continue to give the message God gave him no matter what the response was. And the same is true for us. God just says, I just want obedience. Continue to give the message that I to give to others regardless of their response. Just keep that's all I need from you. Now when you think it's your responsibility to make people listen to the message and then they don't listen to that message, a typical response from us 
at all the reasons why we're at fault. Because if I believe responsible and it doesn't happen, then I must have failed in some way. And so I'm going to try to, you know, pick through what I said and how I said it and, and why I'm at fault in some way for why they're not listening. And really, that's with Moses. Notice his response to the fact that no one's listening to him. He doesn't realize that's not what he's been called to do. He thinks it's his fault. The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. This term uncircumcised lips speaks of an uncleanness or an unworthiness. Basically, Moses saying, I'm not worthy to speak, speaking of lips, for you, God, because I'm a sinful guy. I'm not worthy to be in this role. Why did you place me here? Why am I your spokesperson? I'm not worthy to do that. That's why the Israelites won't listen. That's why Pharaoh won't listen. And this is included. I'm the problem. It's me. I'm a sinful man, and I probably should have never been given this role, God. But this is why it's all because of me. And this is an interesting shift. Because at the end of chapter 5, the three questions that most are basically saying, God, reason why things aren't happening. Why haven't you delivered the nation of Israel? Why did you send me when Pharaoh's doing all this stuff? These questions are geared towards God's reason why things aren't happening. But then God responds to Moses' questions, shows Moses who he is, statements of what he's going to do. And so now Moses' tune has changed, and he thinks, okay, well, if it's not you, it must be me. If you're not the cause, if you're not the reason, then I must be the reason. Listening, It's just because I'm an unworthy, sinful man, and that's why people won't listen to the message that I give. But you know what? It wasn't true. I, one that we often but it wasn't true. The lack of response had nothing to do with Moses' sin. It had nothing to do with Moses' unworthiness. If in all reality, sin and unworthiness kept people from... No one would listen. Because there's not one people here on this earth besides Christ who came that is So God has to use sinful, unworthy people. That's the only people He has to use. And so if that was really the case, guess what? No one would be persuaded because all of us are sinful. All of us are unworthy to be used. That wasn't the reason. The reason was in the people who were hard-hearted, who weren't listening, nothing to do with Moses into this lie. And so God responds in verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> so Moses just says, hey, Israel and Pharaoh, they won't listen to me, God. I'm, it's because I'm an unworthy, sinful man. And God's response is just, you know what? I'm going to give you another command. Go speak to both of them. I got a message to both of them, all right? Were you not listening? I can't do this. No, just obey me. I know you don't think they're going to listen to you, but I want you to go and speak to them again anyway and trust that I will move in them. You know, with this response, I believe God is encouraging Moses, stop looking at Pharaoh. Stop looking at the Israelites. Stop looking at your own inadequacy. Disobey me. Just do what I said. Don't worry about their response. Don't worry about how they're going to view what you say. 
Just trust me and do what I'm commanding you to do and watch what I will do with it. Well, now we come to a very interesting part of this chapter that kind of seems like, what in the world is this doing here? We now come to a genealogy. Right after this genealogy, we have three verses right with these verses that we just had. So it's like, this is a weird place to kind of throw this in here. And so at first glance, it seems very out of place. And at second and third glance, it still seems out of place. But, you know, it would seem more back in chapter two when we had to Jesus' birth. And, you know, this would be the time to kind of talk about who parents were and, you know, the genealogy of or, or sometimes they wait till the end of someone's life and then they kind of give the whole record of all these things. And so either it would seem to make more sense, but God, who chooses where things go, chose to place this genealogy here in chapter 6 right before he starts to bring the plagues. Right before they start to happen that's going to move the heart of to ultimately be willing to let the people go. And so... The complete record of the birth and genealogy of Moses is actually divided into two different parts. Chapter 2 has the beginning of that with his birth. And then here in chapter 6, we have a little bit more of this genealogy, and they're kind of placed in two different portions of Moses' life. And this is very interesting because really each record serves as a type of to two primary phases of Moses' life. Chapter 2 starts the primary phase of Moses, his birth, God's miraculous protection because Pharaoh wants to kill all the baby boys, and he protects him by placing Moses in Pharaoh's palace as a prince of Egypt. And chapter 6 now introduces Moses' ministry where it's just about to really get started. Plagues are going to come where he's facing Pharaoh, and now we see the second real stage of life where God is going to do this. So chapter 2 shows us it was always God's plan to save Moses from the decree that Pharaoh had. And chapter 6 reveals that it was always God's plan to use Moses to deliver the nation of Israel. So most commentators believe this genealogy is placed here. It's the next important stage of Moses' life and what God do in and through him to ultimately fulfill God's plan as Moses being this deliverer. So let's look quickly at this genealogy here. Uh, verse 14 said, These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Camry. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the sons of the Canaanite. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of Levi. Now, Levi is the key. The other ones are just the brothers before him. So now we're getting to the, the main people that we want to see here. According to Gershon, Kohath, and Mariar, I don't know how that's pronounced, but that's okay. The years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon and Libni and Shimi, according to their families, and the sons of Kohath were on Uziel in the years of the life of Kohath three the sons of Mary were Mali and Mushi these were the families of Levi according to their generation now Levi is very significant this tribe is very significant these are 
Moses and Aaron, they're descendants of Levi. So it's significant about them. But more significant is that actually this is a very special tribe, a tribe that's going to give, uh, God's going to give a privilege to that no tribe has, the privilege first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. This is going to be the priestly. So there's very uh, significant things that are happening here. And in the tribe of Levi, there are three Kohath and Merari, and each of these families will be given specific duties in the service of the Lord in this tabernacle. And so people need to be able to trace their lineage to see whether they're actually able to serve uh, as priests. Verse 20. Now Amram took uh, Jochebed, his father's sister, his wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, and the years of the life of Amram were 137. So here we have Moses' parents. Again, you would think that that would be Right off the bat, uh, chapter talks about things, but now we get to you know, some stuff. But this is who his parents were. Uh, and now we're uh, given a little more genealogy 21. The sons of Ishar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphon, and Zitri. Aaron took himself Elishabah, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamah. And the son of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abias. Ah. These are the families of the Korites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Patu uh, as wife, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, according to their families. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their armies. These are the ones who uh, spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Moses. These are the same Moses and Aaron. So they're making very specific. These are the descendants. But the whole point of this is soon, we need to know when the tabernacle is built, who are we tracing our lineage to, so that this specific group, serve the Lord in this way. Uh, and so we have Aaron's descendants, which are very important. Uh, but we're also given um, Korah and his descendants. And the reason that that's interesting is because when we get to the wilderness time, Korah is going to do something quite significant in a way. Uh, and we're going to know um, some things about that when we get there. Well, now we finish this chapter, verses 28 through 30. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So this is just a reiteration of the verses that we had right before the genealogy jumped out. And Moses is struggling with the fact that neither the Israelites nor Pharaoh are willing to listen to him. And God's just saying, you know what? I want you to speak to mo both of them. And Moses' response is, I'm a, a man of uncircumcised lips. How is Pharaoh going to heed me? I'm a sinful, unworthy man. Well, why would Pharaoh listen to anything I have to say? And once again, it's a good question. It's like the questions at the end of chapter 5. You know, coming from a man who's struggling, coming from a man who's in the midst of this difficulty, who's thinking, man, why would Pharaoh ever say? And all of chapter 7, just like all of chapter 6 for the most part, but 
this genealogy is going to be an answer to this question. And so I encourage you to be reading chapter 7 for next week. But with here in chapter 6, we end chapter 5 in a similar way. We have these three questions that Moses had God. Why did you bring trouble on the Israelites? Why did you send me since Pharaoh has done evil to the Israelites? Why have you not delivered your people at all? And God responds to chapter 6 with three great encouraging and comforting things to help Moses with the answer to these questions. First, God helps Moses see that he's about to take care of Pharaoh. Second, God reminds Moses of who he is. He is Yahweh, the God who keeps his covenants. You're going to see me fulfill these things, Moses. This generation is going to experience this. And third, God tells Moses seven things he will do. I'm going to bring you out from under the burdens. I'm going to rescue you from your bondage. I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched judgment. I'm going to take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the promised land, and I will give it to you as an inheritance. And so when Moses poses these three questions, God has gracious response. Not a rebuke, how dare you. It's a response knowing where Moses is at to try to God's got a plan for him. And God knows his frustration. God knows his struggle. God gives him encouragement, response. And I hope that when you are dealing with situations, you're posing these types of questions to God, that the response that God gives here would be an encouragement to you, would be of comfort to you, because this is the kind of God that we serve. And we'll start next week answering the question of how in the world is Pharaoh going to heed Moses and the perspective that Moses had of him being this unworthy, sinful guy? And we're going to get a great answer to that question, so I encourage you to read ahead. Any thoughts on what we looked at tonight?